0: Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. We can give it up for the worship team today. And holding it down. Um, before we jump in, uh, will you join me in prayer? Uh, I just feel like uh, uh, this past week, with, uh, I know many of you have family in Puerto Rico uh, that was hit by a hurricane, and um, many of you have family in Mexico with earthquake, and again, Florida and, and Texas. It just continues to come. And um, as we were singing the, the second song, All Ye Refugees, uh, I was struck by that line um, where it says, watch and wait uh, for what is yet to be. That word yet, uh, there's a there's a phrase in a, a theologian named Karl Barth, and he calls the language of the New Testament, he calls it, it is the now but not yet. The now but not yet. And what he means by that is, um, when Jesus comes out of the tomb, when he's resurrected, we see something that the world has not seen before. We see the defeat of death. We see the birth of the new creation. And new creation is now, but it's not yet. It's now, but it's not yet. There's what he calls the overlap of the ages, the old age and the new age, and they are running uh, parallel to one another now. And there will come a, a point when the old age fades away and what we'll be left with is just the new creation, but it's not yet. And so as Christians, what we gotta do is we gotta hold on to that hope. We hold on to the hope. We, we mourn with those who mourn. We mourn because there is still pain in us and around us in our world, but we hold on to the not yet. It's coming. The new day is coming. It's here and it's coming. So you join me in prayer in that line. (sighs) Jesus, we just want to stop and picture for a moment what it must have been like when the stone was rolled away from your tomb. this giant massive boulder supernaturally pushed away and a man who was lying inside that grave, who was dead, walks out alive. Something the world has not ever seen. Brought back to life, never to die again. In the same body, the old body, but it's, it's transformed, it's renewed. And because of that, your promise, as you send your spirit onto those who turn their faces toward you, Lord, is that we can start to see right now the new kingdom to come. We can see it now. We see the first faint glimmers of the kingdom of love and joy and peace and forgiveness. Where there's no more pain and no more sorrow and no more natural disasters. We can see that, but we also see when we look that it's not yet. It's not yet. There still is pain. There still is sorrow. There still is tragedy with no, um, no, you know, answer that comes easily to mind. So, Father, as we, uh, As this community gathers in this beautiful city, in this wonderful neighborhood, give us eyes to see where the kingdom is already now at work. Give us eyes to be part of that kingdom. And don't let us lose hope when we see the not yet. Give us courage to step into that, to step upon the waters, for that's where you call us. It's in your resurrected name, Jesus, we hold out every single ounce of our hope. Amen. Well, thanks so much for joining us today at Hope Brooklyn. If it's your first time, uh, we're so happy you're here. Uh, We have a saying, a little mantra. We say, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. And what we mean by that is that you don't have to call Jesus Lord to be here. Uh, We recognize that many people here are coming back to church for the first time, or maybe coming to church for the first time, hearing the gospel for the first time, not sure what it all means. Um, Your questions, your doubts, even if you do call Jesus Lord, uh, confession, we still have doubts too. It's all welcome at the table and it's all welcome over food generally because that's how we do it. Um, But thank you so much for being here. We are actually in the middle of a series, a mini series that we're titling Faith and Work. Faith and Work. And what we wanna do with this uh, is we've been examining the ways that this this good news story, this story premised on the idea that Jesus came out of the tomb, um, we wanna examine how that intersects with our various jobs, our various industries. And so far, we've looked at uh, the first two elements of a three-part story. It's a simplistic um, uh, reduction of the gospel, but I think it can be very profound, it's simply this. The gospel story is this. The whole world was good, The whole world was created good, and work, the desire to work was good. The first image we get of God is as a creator, as a gardener, who says to Adam and Eve, hey, pick up a spade and come garden with me. So your desire to contribute something, your desire to make something, your desire um, to, to make a lasting difference in the world, that's actually good and spiritual. Work is not a necessary evil. Work is part of creation because it's part of your God's nature. That's part one. The whole world was good. Work and the desire to work is good. Part two, which we talked about last week, the whole world is broken. Work is broken. And we looked at two fundamental ways that work is broken. First, it's in the nature of the work itself. It's become meaningless. And we examined the Hebrew word havel, which means to be elsewhere always. The whole idea of the grass is greener. Uh, The world was to produce, our hands were to have produced giant fat clusters of grapes. But instead, now what the world produces are thorns and thistles and some really measly grapes and maybe one or two that sustain life, but not what it was supposed to have been. So work is meaningless. That's one way it's broken. The other way it's uh, broken is that the workers, you and I, we engage in work as a way to um, save ourselves. We engage in work as a way to preserve our existence. Many of the decisions you and I make uh, for career advancement and whatnot, um, they're attempts to build a name. And what is building a name but hopefully leaving a legacy after we've died? It's our way to say to the world, no, no, we exist. We're terrified of the prospect that when we die, there's nothing more and everyone forgets you. And so it's like, well, did I even live in this world? The gospel would say yes, but right now we don't trust that our existence and our life is held in, with God. And so we're trying by our selfishness and the ways we work to save ourselves. So that's what we looked at so far. The whole world was good, work is good. The whole world is broken, work is broken. And the third part of the story and what we're looking at today is the whole world will be restored. The whole world will be restored. The Jewish, the Jewish people have a concept called the Tikkun Alam, and that means the restoration of all things. And so the gospel holds out, the promise of the gospel is not that God plucks out the saved from earth to this heavenly celestial space. The promise of the gospel is that Jesus returns to the earth and repairs all things. He restores it, which means he restores our work which means, for those of us who are turning our faces toward this story, he's already restoring our work. The Tikan alum is being manifested through you and through me. And we want to examine then, this all being the case, the question we want to look at today is, how then shall we work? This all, if this is all true, and that the teken alum, the manifestation of the kingdom, is working through us, well then how, how should we work? What does that mean? What are those kingdom principles that work through us? We ended last week with a short story by J.R. Tolkien called Leaf by Niggle. And in it we're told that there's this painter named Niggle and he's given a vision of a beautiful grand tree. But in his lifetime, he only manages to paint a couple leaves. That's all he can get to because of disruptions, disruptions. because of things happening, because he takes so much time on the leaves and he can never get it right. And he dies. And he's, he sort of despairs a little bit because he's like, all I got were the leaves. I didn't even, I didn't get to paint my grand vision. And as he's walking in paradise, he stumbles across a grove and lo and behold, he sees his tree. Like not a tree, but his tree, the one he was he had the vision for. And he sees, he knows it's his because some of the leaves he, he notices the brush strokes that they're his brushstrokes. So what Tolkien is trying to get at is that within each one of us, in our respective lives, in our respective fields, you're given a vision of the Tikkun alum. You're given a vision. God has planted a tree inside your heart. You're given a vision of what is to come. And now, what you're, basically the task set before you is to open your hands and to figure out what does this look like? How is God bringing it to pass through me? So, it's as Tim Keller says, if this is all true, to be a Christian in our work means much more than just being honest or not sleeping with your coworkers. It even means more than personal evangelism or holding a Bible study at the office. Rather, it means thinking out the implications of the gospel story. That is to say, thinking out the implications of the vision of the tree that you've received and God's purposes for your whole work life and for the whole of the organization under your influence. To be in this story is not to look at Christianity, which is always talking about Jesus, doing Bible studies at the job. Those aren't bad things, those are good things. But to be in this story, to be a part of the Tikkun alum, is not to look at something, rather it's to look through something. It's to look through the filter of the story of insanely good news. It's to look through the filter of the reality that Jesus came out of the tomb. And therefore, allowing that story to start to transform you. So one example, one example. So in business, outside in the world, so far as I can tell, uh, there's this phrase called the bottom line. And so far as I can tell, the bottom line simply refers to profit. So the bottom line to determine if a business is successful or not is, is the company generating profit and how much? Now, if you're a Christian, if you're part of the Tekken alum, um, if God has planted a vision of what business might look like in the kingdom, well then maybe uh, generating profit is one bottom line, but it's not the only bottom line. Treatment of employees would be a substantial bottom line. Integrity in the ways we do our business would be a bottom line. So you see there are different aspects and I can't do the work for you because there are way too many industries represented here. That's your job today. What we wanna do is we wanna ask if the gospel is actually true in our work, what are the implications of this? How is this vision of the tree that's been given to you in your respective industry, how is the repair of all things working itself through you? So I'm gonna give sort of examples, Uh, we're gonna talk through sort of four key ways, four key ways that I see the Tekken alum yielding itself in your worldview, and then I want you to apply it to your respective industry, cool? All right, so when we recognize that the whole world is gonna be restored, that the whole world is gonna be repaired, the Tekken alum will yield four things. The first thing I think it will yield is this, a new set of virtues. The first thing it will yield for each one of us and in the organizations that we're a part of is a new set of virtues. So Paul, in his letter to Galatia, he writes, by contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So what Paul has just done in this part of the letter is he juxtaposed the desires of the flesh, which are called the epithumon, the desires of the flesh, which he says are part of the old creation, and they've been crucified. And in their stead, what's growing in each one of us who, is, who have confessed faith in this guy, Jesus, are fruit, carpon, fruit of the Spirit. So this eternity that is placed into our hearts in these various examples, these virtues are fruits. Now, I think that's interesting because fruit, as we know, uh, has to be grown, right? It's not natural. What Paul is saying is that the virtues that are growing in each one of us, like love, joy, peace, patience, they don't come natural. They take work, they take pruning, they take time. Love, he says, love, agapeo. And we know that love for Christians is not this warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not a a fondness. For Christians, love is nothing short of agape which is sacrificial love. It's a willingness to disadvantage yourself entirely, even to death, for the sake of another. Tim Keller writes in his book of a story of a, uh, of a, a businessman who um, his team, basically, he was leading a team in a company, and one of his colleagues, one of his team members, made a big, big mistake, and really, you know, screwed the pooch, and they got in trouble, and rather than this businessman sort of like doing what was fair and having his teammate come up and say, it was my fault, he took the fall. He took total responsibility, said, no, no this, is my, this is my fault. And, um, and his teammate was stunned by this. It's like, what? why did you, this was my mistake. Why did you just take the blame for this? And he tried to brush off, say, "Nah, don't even worry about it. It's no big deal. And she kept pressing like, no, no, no. Why did you do this? Don't even worry about it. Why did you do it? Fine, do you really wanna know? Yes. Because I'm what's called a Christian. <laughs> and part of what's being a Christian is recognizing that my God sacrificed everything for me and for this world, even though it was my, my fault, even though I didn't deserve it. And therefore, he asked us similarly to love others by sacrificing ourselves for the sake of others, that's why. And she asked, what church do you go to? (laughs) That's one example of ways that is being pressed upon us. This, This love, this sacrifice, this agape, it's not natural. It's not gonna come natural. No one in this room wants to take the fall for someone else's mistakes. That's not natural. But when you turn your face to the gospel story and you see a God who came in flesh, undeservedly came in flesh and came to die for you and for me, even though we deserve to pay that price, something shifts inside of you. Something transforms inside of you. A virtue of love starts growing. Joy, he says, Paul says, joy is a fruit of the spirit. We referenced two weeks ago, Brother Lawrence, who was a 12th century uh, cook in in France. Uh, He was a cook and a dishwasher. And people came from miles away because there was this warmth, there was this joy that exuded out of him and everything he did. And he had this famous line where he goes, I can turn a cake on the pan for love of God. There's no task that's ordinary. Every single task, every single uh, thing we do in our work can be imbued with the joy of the gospel that we were to have suffered and our rebelliousness away from God, our separation from God, but instead we're not. Instead he's given us a kingdom, instead we have life, and that joy just emanates from us. I had a lot of surgeries growing up, and it was very clear the nurses who were simply doing their job, and they were doing a great job, but the nurses who were doing their job and the nurses who realized that they were doing something different. Like they they loved, the people, they loved the work. They just loved life. There was a joy about them. And that transferred on to very scared children like me, sitting in the hospital bed wondering what's happening. There's a joy that we can bring to this place, to our work, which people go, what is this? That's one of the best compliments that we've received with Hope Brooklyn. When people say, when they ask, hey, what do you think about the community? And they can't put their finger on it. They're like, there's just something happy about you guys. There's just something different. What are they trying to express? They're trying to express this joy, this fruit of the Spirit. Peace, says Paul. Peace is a virtue of the Tikkun alum. Peace is a virtue of the kingdom. And some of you may know this. And in our language, in our lexicon, peace is kind of a negative, right? And what what we mean is... um, War is what's real, and peace is the absence of war, right? Well, in the Hebrew culture, it's the exact opposite. Peace is the positive. Shalom is total, complete wholeness. It's what's real. Any, any violence is an aberration of that. So what about peace? What does it look like to work in an industry, to work in your respective field, where relational wholeness with colleagues is the the norm, where organizational wholeness is the norm, where you breathe life back into seemingly meaningless professions. Patience, we live in an instant gratification world, what would it look like to not rush things, to walk slowly? Students in the room, what would it look like to not rush your career path? Shoot, for those of us in careers, what would it look like to not rush, to not be concerned with what's gonna happen tomorrow or whether this promotion's gonna come or whether I'm gonna stay in this job forever? What would it look like to simply be patient and enjoy the day? I'm not saying I do that well, but I am asking the question of like, what are these fruits of the spirit which aren't natural for you and I, what would it look like to engage in patience? kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of these are not natural, they won't come easy, but they are the gift of the Spirit. They're part of the tree, so to speak, that God has planted into our minds and our hearts. So what would it look like in your industry, in your field? So that's the first thing the Tikkun Alam yields, a new set of virtues. The second thing the Tikkun Alam yields is a new view of humanity. A new view of humanity. In the very beginning of Genesis, we read, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In a sense, human rights as we understand them are birthed out of the Christian story. Human rights as we understand them are birthed out of the Judeo-Christian story. We hold one of the few beliefs that humans are intrinsically endowed with power and worth and value simply because they are created by our creator, a mutual creator. And every human is created in God's image. What would it be like to treat people with that view? Every single person. In the New Testament when Paul describes the church, the body of believers, he says, he actually calls it just that. The metaphor he uses is a body. A body is one whole. Each part has an indispensable role that if lost would make the body weaker. Each part. I saw this um, uh, really manifested in my dad, actually. My dad works for the YMCA. Any Y kids in the house? Oh, just me, love it. All right, I'm gonna hold it down. I'm gonna hold it down up here. Uh, My dad works for the YMCA, and I remember growing up, um, he was a branch director of of a YMCA branch. And so therefore, consequently, I spent a lot of time at the Y. And I got to see the way my dad led people. I got to see the way he interacted. And um, something I always noticed from a young age, and as I got older, it made more sense. He treated every single person the exact same. It didn't matter if he was talking to a high-up executive. It didn't matter if he was talking to a youth counselor or a volunteer or custodial staff. He genuinely treated them and believed that the why would be infinitely poorer if they weren't around. Each person brought a unique gift and had a unique role, equal role, to do this job, to make this community what it was, the vision behind it. What would it look like to treat each person in your organization, in your industry, with this view that standing before you is one, uniquely crafted by the creator of all the universe. Because that's, that's the view of humanity, that's part of our story now. That's part, when you say, hey, I wanna learn about this God, I wanna follow Jesus, he goes, cool, well, let's start with how we treat people. It is, um, and, and the reason why this is important is because it's also not natural. Tim Keller puts it this way. He goes, the pressures and practices of the marketplace, increasingly cause us to rationalize every aspect of life by analyzing efficiencies. People become contacts, right? I'm meeting contacts, I'm networking. Who can help you? Customers are eyeballs and wallets. Employees are resources to execute a task. And even you, congregants, yes you, forgive me, can become butts in a seat. What do we do? We trade in the view of a robust human for efficiencies, for resources. And to treat a human as a human can be incredibly inefficient. Can you imagine if like, you're, you're a startup company and you hire people and you realize that one is a little bit weaker than you thought, but instead of like saying, hey, let's cut the losses, get rid for the sake of the company going, no, no, no. This is the person, we've invested in them. It's gonna be inefficient. It's gonna take time to develop. But what would it look like to treat a human as a human and not as a contact or a resource? How would that change the way you interact? Doctors, um, to treat patients as people. And I know know many of you in here do that and wrestle with that. But we call people patients. What would it be like to know their names and to know their stories? You're gonna have to be emotionally invested for sure. We you also have a, a different understanding of death and of pain. See, it imbues everything. You can't pull one thread, with, with one thread without others being pulled as well. But we have a new view of humanity. And not just humans in general. We also have a new view of our enemies. This is where it gets really tough. Paul writes in Romans, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. See, the story is that though we rebelled against God, though we estranged ourselves from God, God came in pursuit of us. He sacrificed himself for us. Therefore, nothing less is being asked of you if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, than not that you treat people who like you or who you like well, but that you treat your enemies well. That those in your industry who... Uh, backstab you, who don't like you at all. And if you're being honest, you don't really like them that much either. What would it look like to not only uh, treat others as a human but to say, I'm also gonna sacrifice and disadvantage myself for you? One of the common refrains in the Judeo-Christian story is that when we are cursed, we return with blessing. What would that look like? To be cursed in your work, in your line of work, And instead of responding with cursing, to respond with blessing, to respond with love. Good luck with that, by the way. Let me know how it goes. That's why I like being a pastor. (laughs) We have a new view of the enemy. The enemy is now we love them into a friend. And maybe they never become a friend, but we don't return cursing with cursing. We return cursing with blessing. That's part of the Tikkun alum. As part of what's being grown inside of us that's part of the call being placed upon us so we have new set of virtues we have a new view of humanity third we have a new audience in our work we have a new audience in colossians 3 paul writes and whatever you do work at it with your whole life as to the lord and not for humans knowing that you will receive the reward of your inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. See, you can treat humans as humans. You can start to engage in your work as part of the restoration of all things when you know that your audience, who you work for, is no longer humans. Your audience is the Lord himself. So what does that mean then? How do, we, how do we serve the Lord? When Paul says, and whatever you do, work at it with your whole life as to the Lord and not for humans. What does that mean? Well, I wanna quote again uh, from the first uh, couple weeks back, Dorothy Sayers article, Why Work? And she writes this. She says, I ask that work should be looked upon not as a necessary drudgery to be undergone for the purpose of making money, but as a way of life in which the nature of humans should find their proper exercise and delight and so fulfill themselves to the glory of God, that it should in fact be thought of as a creative activity, work should, undertaken for the love of the work itself and that man made in God's image should make things as God makes them for the sake of doing well a thing that is well worth doing. So the first task of the church is to teach you to serve the work. You serve God by serving your work. I love how she puts it here. She goes, no crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter shop at Nazareth. Nor if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. Right? There's an excellence. There's an excellence demanded upon you We serve the Lord by serving our work, our respective fields, our industry. We bring the fullness of our skills, our talents, our passions. We bring the fullness of ourselves, of our brokenness. We're not gonna get it perfect, but we bring the fullness of ourselves to this work. If we remember that the sacred and the secular is no more, that everything is holy, everything is spiritual, then one of the best ways that you honor your maker is to serve your work your art, your position. And Dorothy Sayers was a a playwright, actually. And so she does a lot of her work from the the vantage point of Christian art. And one of the questions she asked, and this is back in the 1900s, mind you, why can Christian art be so bad? Right? We've all seen it. Why can it? It doesn't have to be. But why can Christian art be so bad? And she says, it's because it's dishonest. It doesn't tell the truth. It doesn't serve the work. It doesn't serve the material, the story. It tries to, it censors itself for the sake of the community. So case in point, um, we've all seen paintings of the birth of Jesus, right? We've seen paintings. And how do they usually go? Well, usually Mary looks pristine. She's looking great. She does not look she just like she just gave birth to a child before epidurals, which I've never given birth, but I've heard epidurals are great. She doesn't look like that. The animals are all posturing their faces toward Jesus. There's like a a heavenly light. It is so clean and sanitary. And I'm not saying that's a bad representation of the birth in Jesus, I'm not. But I'm saying, what would it look like if we actually like painted a realistic picture of Mary giving birth to jesus and then we dwelt on the thought that that child is the one who made mary that the one who made mary now requires mary unequivocally or it will die imagine the power in a piece of art like that imagine the power there's a there's a song actually um by a band called King's Kaleidoscope. It's called A Prayer. And in it, the form of the song is uh, this this lyricist, the vocalist, uh, singing a prayer to God. Uh, But it came under some controversy because in the middle of the prayer, it offers a little four-letter word. saying basically, where are you, God? What's going on? And people wondered of, well, can, can a Christian say that? Like, is that honoring? To God. Now, this is a longer discussion than just a sermon. And personally, I think there's a difference between songs that are made um, for private devotion and songs that are made for corporate worship gatherings. That's my own personal opinion. But I think it asks a really interesting question. Um, because sometimes, and maybe it's just me, maybe not you, sometimes I can get angry with God and words come to my consciousness. Of, Where are you, God? What? And the world is going on. Why can't we be honest about that? Because we don't, because we we think we censor ourselves for the sake of not offending one another. But Dorothy Sayers would say the way we serve God is to serve the work, to serve the fullness of the situation, of the story, to actually bring to our work, and Christian art in her case, the full Measure of honesty. What would it mean to be deeply honest? As Jacques Martian says, if you want to produce Christian work, be a Christian and try to make a work of beauty in which you have put your heart. Do not adopt a Christian pose. That's when we get in trouble, is when we think there are forms that are Christian forms. Instead, be fully honest about the work itself. And it doesn't just have to be art. Art's an easy um, area but it can be anything what would it look like to be fully honest about the gospel story to be fully honest in your industry that jesus came out of the tomb and he's alive today if that sinks into you what would that do how would that transform the way you treat your colleagues the way you serve the work the way you know that his work will last forever how you make decisions because it will it will now, some of you might be um, in an industry where you ask yourself, well, if I serve the work, if I bring the fullness of myself, we're engaging as a, as a corporation, as an organization, in an industry with unethical practices that might always be at odds with the Teak alum. And then you're gonna have to do some serious discernment, hopefully in community. And just so you know, uh, throughout history, different um, Different groups of Christians have felt differently about this. Uh, so the Quakers believe that you cannot, if you're, if you're a Christian and you're a Quaker, you can't hold public office of any sort. That's how they've sided. And I think there's, there's um, just as an aside, I think there's room for differing interpretations, uh, differing views of how God has called each of us. But it is going to require serious levels of discernment and open Dialogue and prayer and honesty. Maybe honest prayer. So, the Tekken alum will yield a new set of virtues. It will yield a new view of humanity and of your enemies. It will yield a new audience. We work not for humans but for God and we serve God through serving the work. And last, it will yield a new telos. Telos is a Greek word. It means the end, but it's much deeper than the end. It means a complete sense of maturation, something that is entirely mature. There's no more potential for it to become something, to evolve, it is done, it is finished, it is mature. And the work that we engage in now, the vision of the tree that you've been given in your respective industry or field is that that mature tree. And it won't be fully realized, but that's what we're working toward. In Ecclesiastes, we said last week, uh, the author said that the only work that lasts is God's work. God's work does not fail. But notice in the leaf by niggle, even though he was given the vision of the tree, all he got were leaves. That's all he finished in his lifetime before he died. The tree was real, the tree was the telos. And that brings up the fundamental point for us. The work we engage in, the vision of the tree that you've been given, you will not complete on this side of the mountain. You won't ever complete it here. You'll be given a vision of a tree and you'll just get some leaves done. You'll be given a vision of a a classroom full of shalom and it will never be fully realized. You'll be given a vision of an organization that operates off of gospel principles, the way we treat people and the virtues we engage, and it will never be fully realized. But now we don't lose heart at that because we recognize the tree is real. The tree will be the telos. It just won't come through my hands alone. Though the Tikkun alum is being manifested through me, it won't be manifested fully. So um, David Brooks, who's a New York Times uh, uh, writer, he wrote a couple years back that there are three high-status jobs that young people are pursuing. They're pursuing the jobs that pay well, they're pursuing the jobs that work directly on society's needs, and they're pursuing the jobs that have a cool factor. I definitely became a pastor because of the cool factor, just in case you were wondering. (laughs) we sort of gravitate to one of these three lanes because uh, we think that that's that's all there's there, right? But what I'm contending for today is that within each one of you, you've been given a set of passions. Uh, You've been given a set of skills. You've been given a vision of a tree. What is that vision of a tree? Because that vision of the tree is the Tikkun alum. It's the vision, as Ecclesiastes says, of eternity that's been planted inside your heart. And that's what's real. You won't see it fully realized, but that is what's real. Go after that. Therefore, Howard Thurman writes, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive. And then go and do that. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. That's precisely what the gospel is saying. What is that vision of a tree that you're like, this, this is what I dream about. This is what I wake up and wanna do. And then start painting those leaves. Start painting those leaves. I wanna invite the worship team back up and I wanna end with this little story to sort of emphasize this last point in new Telos, because um, the reality is we can only trust the new set of virtues We can only trust the new view of humanity and the new view of our enemies. We can only trust our new audience when we understand and deeply uh, realize that there's a new telos and it's not gonna be on this side of the mountain. Because the reality is, because what am I saying? I'm saying that you're not gonna fully be able to paint that tree. You're only gonna get leaves. And it's gonna be a hard enterprise, it's gonna be long, it's gonna be laborious, you're gonna get exhausted along the way. But hold out hope, hold out hope. And I think a great story that emphasizes that, that there's a, 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 another point where the tree is there on the other side of the mountain. Uh, I heard a long time ago, and it's one of those great stories, I'm not sure if it's uh, historically true or if it's mythically true. And sometimes I think those are the best, sto- the best stories is when they straddle that line between is this historical or mythological, and both. But anyway, that's another thing. Um, but the story goes that there was a husband and wife who were missionaries, and they're returning home on a ship um, after years and years and years of service. Uh, they were retiring, they were returning back to their native land, uh, I wanna say England, I don't know why, but they're, they're coming home. And as they're on the ship nearing shore, uh, they see in the distance there's a great crowd of people, and there's cheers. And as they get closer and closer, uh, the cheers are getting louder and louder, and their hearts are just swelling and throbbing, and they're, oh, they're so overcome with emotion. And as the ship gets closer to, to shore, they recognize, unfortunately, the crowd's not for them, that there's a a, a president or a statesman on board. Um, and, uh, their hearts, especially the husband's heart, just drops. Um, and he's crushed. And people, they, they uh, disembark and people are starting to get off. And he's talking with his wife and he goes, I don't get it. Like we, we spent our entire lives um, serving people, pursuing the gospel, trying to love people well, trying to bring about the Tikkun alum, the repair of all things. And not one person not one person came to welcome us home, and uh, his wife looks at him and kind of smiles gently and goes, "Honey, we're not home yet. We're not home." So as you engage in your work, as you um, do the many, many hours of thankless and tireless work, as you start living according, to a new world that many people can't see, to a new set of virtues, to a new audience, to a new view of humanity that, uh, mind you, when you actually start doing it, it will hurt. You will be abused, Uh, you will get used in the process. You might not get the highest rungs of career ladder because of this, but remember, you can trust that because there is another side of the mountain. And there will be people, as Paul says, great clouds of witnesses. And I'll be there in the front row to welcome you home for the work you've done. Pray with me. Lord, our hearts are stirred by this idea that you have planted eternity into them, that you've given us a vision of the kingdom that is already here, though it's not yet here. The kingdom that is, that is coming, that's already present, and it's uh, being manifested through us even as we are being transformed into the full reality of the kingdom. Lord, as we consider our own industries today, our own organizations, our own working environments, our own careers, would you speak so clearly to every single person here? Would you give them a practical takeaway? One area, whether it's about the new virtues that are being grown, the fruit that's being grown inside of them, whether it's about a new view of humanity, perhaps there's a colleague that they need to think about differently, treat differently, perhaps it's an enemy Whether it's about a new audience that they don't work for peer approval. They don't work to serve others. They actually work to serve you. And therefore, maybe you're asking them to to bring another level of effort or of passion into their work. Or whether it's simply to give them hope that the tree that's inside of them, it's real, and it will come to pass. And some of it will be through their hands, though not all of it. But they will see the fullness of their work, of the Ticcan alum. Whatever it is, Lord, will you speak to people right now and give them a practical step as they go forth today. Let us, as your followers, Jesus, be known by the way we work. Let us be known by the way we serve others, by the way we uh, work with integrity, by the way we love others, by the way we bring a level of excellence and passion and joy to the job. Let us just be known as those who work differently because we work to you because we have a different vision of what work should be. We can't do this alone. We need the fullness of your spirit. So Holy Spirit, we just invade people. We just inspire great creativity and great hope, great courage. Will you speak to them that they're not alone, that you're with them. You've always been with them and you always will be with them. You go before them. Thank you, Lord. You have all of us, you have permission. It's in your name we pray, amen. Thanks again for tuning into this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.